We have been in the book of Hebrews, and if you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Hebrews. In beginning in chapter 2, we'll be starting in chapter 2 and verse 5. We've begun to explore the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews, as we've talked about, Hebrews is a sermon that is written to people that are in trouble, a group of people who are experiencing pressure from a broader culture that they would essentially take a break from their journey of salvation, that, they, that this journey of salvation that they were on, that they were feeling pressure from an outside world, whether it's a broader Greco-Roman culture of the first century or this Jewish culture of the first century that was putting pressure on them to say, hey, I know you're on a journey, but why don't you just sit down and not do that anymore? Why don't you just take a break? And the author of Hebrews takes this opportunity to say, look, the journey to salvation, the journey to rest, the journey to the city of God is not something that we should neglect. It's not something that we should drift away from. It's not something we should take a break. As a matter of fact, what we need is we need a trusted guide who can take us to where we need to go, that we might be experiencing this pressure from an outside world, but we need to keep going. We need endurance. And so as we look at the book of Hebrews, we're going we're to be taking a look at this, this, especially this idea that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. I think one thing to note, and even as we have, we have our two readers, we've had our, our two reader, one reader is, is, uh, is reading as the author of Hebrews is speaking, and another reader is reading, is playing the part of the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews will quote from the Old Testament. Sometimes as we do this, and sometimes I don't know if you experience this when you open your Bible, and maybe you don't, maybe this is just me, because you all are super smart, and you know exactly what's going on when you open your Bible. But sometimes when you open your Bible, like I do sometimes, is you open it up and you're like, what in the world is going on? That you feel like you maybe landed on another planet and nobody told you about the atmosphere or like what you're supposed to bring or how you're supposed to understand this. And sometimes the book of Hebrews is like that, like walking onto the moon or onto another planet. And what I want to do today is I just want to kind of orient us to where we are in the book of Hebrews and to take a look at what the author is doing during this time. So, um, so you guys with me? All right, great. Okay. So you guys are going to be familiar with this if we have an hourglass. And we have the way the author of Hebrews, the, the, the mind of the author of Hebrews is like this, that you have the heavenly realms where God exists. And the heavenly realms are up here, and the earthly realms are down here. And they all funnel together from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven into these very important spots or people or mediators. In order to get from earth to heaven, you need guides and you need mediators. Someone is going to be able to take you. And so what happens is that in the Old Testament and in the mind of the author of Hebrews, that, the, that God in the heavenly realms has sent down heavenly intermediaries like angels and coming down out of heaven and they, they provide messages and like the Torah was one of the considered a heavenly message from God and it's coming down out of the heavens. And at the same time, God would take people and things on the earth and raise them up as guides and intermediaries. Things, people like Moses or people like Joshua or people like high priests or things like sacrifices or places like tabernacles that they would all be put forth out of the earth and they would all kind of coalesce. And if we gathered from heaven to, to earth that we would meet in this one spot. 
And in Jewish mindset, that was oftentimes considered like the temple or the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant. But this idea that there are all these intermediaries coming down out of heaven, being raised up from earth, and the author of Hebrews wants to say, hey, whatever intermediaries you've used in the past to get to God, I want to make it clear, Jesus is greater than all of those intermediaries. Jesus is better than any of the things that God has sent down in the past, and, God, and Jesus is greater than anything any human has raised up to try to get to God, or even what God has raised up in the past. And so, in the book of Hebrews, what we want to pay attention to are all of these things that are coming from the past, that the author is going to say, Jesus is greater than, hence our graphic, Jesus is greater. You math wizards out there, that's a greater than sign. Remember, because the alligator chomps the bigger thing, right? Yeah, okay, all right, you guys are with me here. That's my level of mathematics, everybody, okay? So Jesus is greater than. And where he's at in this argument is he's right in the middle of this argument that Jesus is greater than angels. And we talked about this last week. Jesus is greater than angels. He has been, he is the, in the image of God, that he is the, the imprint of his essential nature, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is greater. The angels worship Jesus. And all, Jesus is much greater than the angels, not just a little bit greater. He's greater by category. He's categorically better. He is a son. They are messengers. And so Jesus is greater than angels. Angels delivered the message of the Torah, but Jesus is delivering a message of ultimate salvation. And therefore, we, if we paid attention to that, then we certainly need to pay attention to this, the message that has been spoken by Jesus. He's in this, this, this argument that Jesus is greater than. And at, the, at, at this point in the argument, he makes a very interesting twist to the argument. Though he said, look, I just told you that Jesus is greater, but what I want to do now is I want to convince you that Jesus has been made less than angels. Look at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet. So he quotes scripture to make his point. And today, um, the role of scripture was played by Leray Farmer, the role of the Old Testament. So that was wonderful. And he quotes the passage the same way I oftentimes quote the Bible, which is like, hey, there's a scripture written by someone somewhere. You guys notice this? He says, he says it is written somewhere. Like, I love quoting the Bible like that. I remember this verse, it's somewhere, and somebody said it one time. So what he's talking about, somewhere, sometime, is Psalm 8, 4. Psalm 8, 4 through 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And what the author's going to do in the book totally, and this is really the first time that he does it, is the author's going to say, hey, I want to make this point about Jesus, and I'm going to quote this passage from the Old Testament, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to use certain phrases or words from that passage that are important to make my point. And in this case, in quoting these three verses from Psalm 8, there are three 
phrases that he thinks are super important. Everything under, in subjection under his feet, made a little, lower, a little while lower than the angels, and crowned with glory and honor. Look at what happens in the second half of verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, again, that's that first phrase, he puts everything in subjection to him, we see him who was made a little while lower than the angels, there's another phrase from the passage, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, another phrase from the passage, because of the suffering of death, so that the, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All right, so that's a little bit what the author's doing. What, what does he mean by this? What's going on with this? And he's basically saying this, look, I've showed you already that Jesus is greater than these heavenly intermediaries, these heavenly messengers that have come down. Jesus also is coming down out of heaven. Jesus is pre-existent. Before Jesus was ever born, he existed, and he's the son of God, and he's glorified. He upholds all things by the word of his power. It is through him God has created all things. That's all in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. Angels are transient. The sun reigns eternally. He's got the name sun. They're messengers. Angels worship him. All things have been put subject to him. But what the point that he wants to make is this. One of the things about this sun is we don't right now see everything in subjection to him. Can I get an amen if you've watched news, right? If you watch the news, if you walk around the streets, if you drive on the freeway, you know that not everything has been put under Jesus. As a matter of fact, you might even wonder if there's a God at all. You might even wonder, I mean, what the heck is going on? Like, you're telling me that Jesus, that that the Son is in charge of everything and everything has been submitted to him and he's seated on a throne with a scepter and he's sending out angels and he's all-powerful. And the author of Hebrews is saying that's true, but listen, we don't yet see all of that. We are still down here on earth. And Jesus has come down and gone back up into the heavenly realms, and he is enthroned, but we do not yet see that. And to a group of people who are experiencing pressure, who are experiencing the outside pressure from a a hostile world, that they need to take a break and that the evidence for Jesus is scant, the author's going to say, look, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to admit to you, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Uh, in, in, to be honest, it, it, it's refreshing. The honesty is refreshing. Sometimes we can get super triumphant, right? Sometimes we can be like, if, if you're a believer, everything's going to go right. And it's kind of like Psalm 1. Like, if, you know, I will not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. I will delight in the law of the Lord, and everything I do will prosper. And that, look, that's great conventional wisdom, and that's how I want to teach my kids. You do the right thing, and there will be ultimate reward for that. But the truth is, the unconventional wisdom of, like, the book of Job is the reality of our world. A man who does right all the time and is a righteous man, but he experiences suffering. That's unconventional wisdom. And the question is, how should we respond 
in the midst of a world in which we do not yet see all things in subjection to Jesus? How should we feel? How are we going to move forward on this journey when the journey is literally so treacherous? These people have already experienced pressure. They've had friends thrown in jail. They've had property seized. That's in chapter 10. They've been made a public spectacle or a public reproach. How are we going to go on this journey if it, what, what is it, the, the ultimate reality is not being experienced here on earth? Right now, he says in 2.8, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What do we see? How do we see the Son? By the way, up to this point in the book of Hebrews, the name Jesus has not been said. Up to this point in the book of Hebrews, it, we've only heard about the Son. We've got the Father and we've got the Son. And so what... He says, what, what do we see? How, how do we see the sun? He says in 2.9, but we see, so we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but what we do see is him who has for a little while been made lower than the angels, Jesus. His name is Jesus. I love in the Common English Bible um, and in the message, they, they say this, we see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, and in the message it says, it's Jesus! It's like, so this is it. What we've seen is we've seen this Jesus event. Up to this point, he's just referred to as his exalted title of son. We have king, enthronement, scepters. We see the son. It's Jesus. But what we understand when we read the Gospels is that the Jesus event, the incarnation, what we call in theology, we call it the incarnation, the Jesus event is not about triumph. When you read in the Gospels, Jesus is not born into a, into a family that lives in a palace. He's born in a borrowed location. And then he becomes a refugee, sent into Egypt and back into the land. A common person in a common family with a common name, Yeshua, Joshua, it's like you could, have, you could have called him John Doe. He's just a guy. And that's the point of Hebrews. He is a guy. He's, he's a guy just like you. That's his point. That's what he's going to try to, to, to put forth to us. That the Jesus event was not an event clothed in triumph. I mean, as much as we want to clothe Jesus in triumph, when we read the Gospels, these are not triumphant stories. There are moments of triumph for sure. And people's lives are changed. But the Jesus event is, a, is an event of humility. It's an event, it's an event in which Jesus takes a lower spot. He is made lower than the angels. And the author of Hebrews is like, for a little while. Just for a little while, he was made lower than the angels, but that was a very strategic time. There was triumph, but it was subtle and in moments. But predominantly what Jesus experienced in the incarnation is what we all experience, the strain and pressure of trial and temptation. And in a word, and what the word is that the author of Hebrews is going to use, is what he experiences is what we all experience, and that is suffering. Suffering. And in that suffering and death is what gets him crowned with glory 
and honor. His suffering and death being made lower than the angels is going to allow him to do some things that, act, that technically he was not able to do before he experienced that thing. It's, it's, it's super interesting. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. In verse 10 it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, this is God the Father, it was fitting that he, God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And you're like, you're like, hey, Pastor Craig, I've been in church for a long time, and I, I know enough to know that it's not okay to talk about Jesus as being imperfect. And what you're reading here is that Jesus was made perfect by suffering, implying that he was imperfect at a, at a time before, but now is made perfect. Now, what I want to point out here is this is not about Jesus existing in the, in the form of God, that he's somehow imperfect. The idea is that it's not that he's imperfect as God. What he is imperfect as is as the founder of salvation. In other words, in order for him to actually become the founder, the forerunner, the pioneer of salvation, what he has to experience is suffering. God knows about suffering. God sees suffering. What God chooses to do is come down in the person of Jesus and experience suffering. And something happens when God comes and chooses to experience suffering. There's a couple things that happen in this. It says in 2.10, uh, or 2.11, first thing is this. Let's see. No, go back to 2.10. So, okay, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So in order to become the founder of salvation for humans, it says that it was fitting or that it is suitable that he would experience the same saving from death and suffering that those who eventually are going to be saved would experience. So in other words, if you're going to be the founder of salvation, you have to experience that salvation, that saving from death and suffering like they will. And so Jesus says, okay, I'm going to sign up to become incarnate, and I'm going to experience the same pressures, the same trials, the same testing, the same temptations, the same weakness that they do, the same pain that they do. I'm going to become the first and the, the, the best example and the first to experience this pain, trial, temptation and I'm going to put my trust in the Father to save me from it. This is why Jesus in chapter 12 is called the author and perfecter of faith. Because he himself had to trust the Father. He himself had to come down. He didn't, when we read in the Gospels, it's not that Jesus died and then raised himself from the grave. It is that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Implying that he is not the one doing it. It is God the Father who did it. He has to trust that God will save him. And so, being the son, enthroned, he says, okay, I'm going to lay down my scepter. 
I'm going to step down off the throne, and I'm going to be put in a vulnerable position. Because if we want, if we want them to experience salvation, they're going to need someone who has gone before them in it. And he has becomes perfected as the founder of salvation. So a couple things he does. This is a couple things that happen. You guys with me? I know this sounds, it sounds a little weird. You're like, Jesus had faith? And the answer is yes. Jesus, has to ha- Jesus had to have the same faith that you have. The same faith in a God who will save him. Certainly, we put our faith in Jesus, we put, but ultimately, we put our faith in God through Jesus. And Jesus has to trust that he will be saved in, in this weak, vulnerable position as a human being. He has to come down. And the thing is, you might be saying, that's blasphemy, Pastor Craig. And I'm like, look, is it? How else does he know how you feel? How else does he know how long it can be? How else is he going to know what your pain is like, what the loss is like? And God says, look, it's fitting. It's fitting that he would make himself lower than angels. Look at 2.11. It says, for he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, And those who are sanctified, that's us, they all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Your your Bible probably says not ashamed to call them brothers. It's inclusive. And the idea is is this, that Jesus says, look, not only is it fitting that I come down from heaven, that I'm sent down from heaven, that I come to earth in a humble position, it's fitting And when I do come down here, I'm not coming down here like, you idiots. Come on, let's get it together. Come on, everybody. Come on. That's not what Jesus does. He says, look, you guys, I might have come from heaven, but I am now among my brothers and my sisters. I, I feel what it's like. I know the pressures, and I, I am not, and look, you guys are a mess. No offense. Look, I am too, and if Jesus were to show up, he'd be like, yeah, I know you're all a mess, but here's the thing, here's the thing. I am not ashamed of you. I am not ashamed to call you my brother or my sister. When I was preparing this message, all I could think about was Hulk Hogan. Let me tell you something, brother. <laughs> right? Like I could, Jesus is like, I, you are my brother. And I'm not ashamed. I love you. I came for you. I am not ashamed of you. I, I want you. I want you to be my brother. Look, we all, we both can call God, we can call my father your father. He is your father. When you pray, say Father. I'm not ashamed to say, I'm not ashamed to introduce you to my family. I'm not ashamed to bring you in. I don't think you're going to mess the place up. I'm not ashamed to call you my brother, my sister. That's 2.11. Look at 2.14. He says, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, 
he himself likewise partook of the same things. And this idea you take on flesh and blood, it means you take everything that it means to be human, you take on flesh and blood. I will take on everything that makes you human. This is what Jesus does in the incarnation. Fully God and fully human. That's, 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 or, that's what we call orthodox Christology. That everything that God is, Jesus is, and everything that humans are, Jesus is. Okay? So it's fully God, fully human. You can't say he's like God. You say, no, he's fully God. And you can't say, well, he's kind of, he's like human. He appears to be human. You can't say that either. Whatever the essential attributes of humanity are, he has them. And some of you might say, well, you know, how can that be? Because I sin, and every human sins, right? Pastor Craig, every human sins, but Jesus didn't sin. How can, he, how can that be human? And I would just say this. Sinning is not a necessary attribute of humanity. When God created Adam, when God created Adam, Adam had not yet sinned, but he was fully human. Now, eventually, he falls, and we all fall. Jesus comes as the second Adam. Now, the necessary attribute is not sin. The necessary attribute is weakness and temptation. That's what's endemic to us as human beings. We will, you will never get away from your own weakness. As much as you try, you will never get away from it. That's a necessary attribute. You are finite. You're a finite being. And our finiteness, our weakness, is what moves us to have to have faith in one who can save us. So Jesus says, I will come, I will take on your weakness, your flesh and blood, I will take it on. And it will obscure all those attributes of deity. You wonder, like, how does all that work together? It's what, it's what theologians call the hypostatic union. The author of Hebrews is not as concerned about that at this point, but it, there are some questions that come up, and we can, we can talk through it. Maybe we'll do a podcast or something, because it is a, a bit of a deep dive, okay? But, the, but what he's making the point of is that everything that you experience as a human being, a necessary attribute of being a human being, Jesus takes on. And sometimes we can be in awe of Jesus enthroned and awesome, and that's, I, that's super great. But sometimes we can be just as that Jesus knew what it was like for his knee to hurt. Or to get a blister from a bad set of sandals. I, what did Jesus wear? Sandals? Yeah. What it's like to be Or to wonder just how many days is this going to take? He takes that on willingly. It's fitting. It's suitable. Because the one, one of the things that he needs to do, he's got to have solidarity with his brothers and sisters. You're my brother. You're my sister. God is our father. I want to adopt you. I want to bring you in. And this is a whole, the whole idea of salvation. It's being reconciled to a father through the son and the spirit. Being reconciled to the father through the work of the son and through the work of the spirit. Okay, a little theology this morning, everybody. Okay, oh, I hope you're, you guys with me? All right, that's good. Even if you're not, I'm, I'll be done in a few minutes. All right, so I'll be your brother. I will not be ashamed that you are my brother. 
I'm not be ashamed that you are my sister. And so Jesus is perfected as the founder of salvation. He shares in everything that makes us human. That's the first thing that happens when Jesus becomes a little lower than the angels or lower for a little while than the angels. The other thing that he does, and this is where I feel like, okay, this is where we get a little triumphant. This is where we get a little bit like, you know, uh, um, his suffering also allows him to do something else, and that is to do battle. 2.14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Awesome. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The word devil is um, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Satan, ha-satan. Satan is the accuser, the slanderer. If you've ever felt like that voice in your head kind of accusing you, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not accuse you. The Holy Spirit convicts you, takes you to the Father. What, what the devil does is uh, he accuses you and drives a wedge between you and the Father. How can I go to him again? How could you do that again? How could you do that again and go to the Father? You, you, you got to make things right before you go to the Father. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like, hey, that's wrong. Let's go to the Father. His, literally, his name is the accuser. And so we need to understand, we need to unmask that and understand when you feel accused and feel like I can't go to the Father, that is the accuser. It is his name. And so what Jesus does, he's like, hey, I'm going to come down in a position of weakness, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to suffer with you, and I'm going to die like you will. And you know what's going to happen? I'm going to destroy the accuser. He will have no power left. This word destroy, super interesting word destroy. There's a lot of words in Greek about to, uh, for destroy, and there's awesome. If you do like all the synonyms of destroy, there's like destroy and crush and, and topple. There's great words. This word is an interesting word because I was actually a little surprised that they translated it as destroy. The word, this word is that when you, to destroy something is basically this, in, in this for this word. Um, it's to use up, so to exhaust or waste. It's not like Jesus doesn't come to crush Satan. What he does is he exhausts Satan. If the devil has the power of death, and Jesus then suffers and dies, and Satan's like, yeah, I got him. It's like he's got his foot on him, right? I got him, I got him. And then, but Jesus won't stay down. And so Satan is trying to keep him down. And Jesus is just like, no, I'm coming up. And he's like, no, I'm trying to keep you down. He exhausts the power of Satan. That all of the power that he has, all the strength, all of the tools in his belt, everything that he has, Jesus comes and basically says, whatever tool, whatever you've got, why don't you throw it at me? Give give it a shot. And what Jesus does is he simply absorbs all everything that Satan has to throw, leaving Satan exhausted. None of his tricks work anymore because Jesus raises from the dead and Satan cannot hold him down. And what he does is he makes the power of death irrelevant. If Jesus raises from the dead and promises 
that if you put your faith in Jesus, you too, one day, you will be raised from the dead, bodily raised from the dead, and you don't have fear of death anymore because you're like, look, I know I have this amount of time on earth, and I know when I die, I'll go into the presence of the Lord, and when Jesus comes back, I will bodily be raised up. Look, who cares? Who, who cares what you're going to do to me? What can Satan do? It exhausts Satan. He has nothing left. It makes his schemes powerless. The image of the devil with flexed muscles putting Jesus to death, but then trying to hold him down, he becomes exhausted. It says here that the fear of death leads to slavery. That seems to be the interesting thing, what the author of Hebrews thinks is the human condition, is that the fear of death leads to people being subject to lifelong slavery. And what Jesus does is he says, hey, you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. I will, I will go down, I will trust the Father, he will raise me up, and I will be the first of many who come from the grave. We can go in the presence of the Father, but death is no longer, the, death is no longer what is the ultimate issue. The human condition of weakness, on one hand, it can lead to trust in God, but I think what we more see, the human condition of weakness in our world leads to quests for power, quests for influence, holding on to power, lies, violence, abuse, pressure, suffering. But our human condition, our weakness of human condition, it doesn't have to lead to all those things. It can lead to a robust trust in the one who can deliver us. Ultimately, 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful. Can you just hear that, that Jesus is merciful? That what God wants to be is merciful. You'll hear a lot of voices that God wants to condemn and God wants to, look, he sent Jesus so he can be merciful. Merciful and faithful. He doesn't want to just show up and then get out of there and hide. He wants to be a faithful brother. A faithful friend. I think sometimes, again, the devil does all kinds of work, but we, we have these images of God that he, he is not merciful and he's not faithful, he, that he's, he's, he's harsh and that he's hidden. But Jesus has come because he, want, he wants to be merciful. He wants to be faithful, a merciful and faithful, that he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make atonement, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We'll talk more about what that means. And the shedding of blood means that there is, there is a sacrifice of atonement that takes place that covers, not only removes our sins, but covers our sins and takes away our sins. Leaving the devil exhausted. What can he, what can he accuse you of? This is what Romans 8 is. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 5, if having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, what, what then can we say? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God himself is saying, 
I have forgiven them. And we're just left with an exhausted Satan trying to accuse. But sometimes, sometimes he gets in there, right? And we need to remember, we need to remember because we do not see everything in subjection to him yet. And it's hard. And that's why the book of Hebrews was written. We're on a journey, and what we need is not only a great cloud of witnesses around us, but we need the guide who walks with us, who doesn't just walk at the front of the pack, but walks within the pack. And is like, hey, look, you need help. Or even like, I was just thinking about the, the poem, Footprints. Sometimes it can be a little bit trite, but you guys know the poem, I think. But it's basically the story of someone having this visionary experience, and they see the scenes of their life, and they see these two sets of footprints in the sand, right? And all through their life, there's two sets of footprints. But as they look back on the hardest times, they only see one set of footprints, and they go to Jesus, and they're like, what gives? Where'd you go? He says, look, I'm never going to leave you. Those hardest times, there's only one set of footprints because that's the times I carried you. I will carry you. I've come on this journey with you, not just to show you the way, but to carry you when you need to be carried. It was fitting. It's appropriate. This is what I wanted to do. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Look, I I just... At the very basic level of what we're doing here today, obviously we're celebrating who God is, who Jesus is. We anticipate that God's going to move. We remove distractions. We call attention to God. But the very basic thing is I just want you to walk out of here. If there's one thing I want you to walk out of here today is that Jesus can help. He has come to help. From heaven to earth, taking on all of everything that humanity has, doing battle with the devil, suffering and dying, so that he can help. Because he's been tested. He's been tempted. He can help. He knows what it's like. Do you feel pain? I feel pain. Do you feel lonely? I felt lonely. Do you feel betrayed? I've been betrayed. Do you wonder how long your trial is going to last? I have cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you feel the pressure of this world? Jesus will say, I have felt the pressure of this world. And if you'll hang with me, we will go to the city of God together. And I will not leave you behind. I will never, ever forsake you. I will always be with you. These are are enduring. Brothers don't stop being brothers. Fathers don't stop being fathers. Children don't stop being children. These are enduring. These are enduring relationships. It's not like, hey, you're going to be my business partner. Like, yeah, those things end, right? That's that's not the relationship God says. He could have chosen any kind of relationship. He chooses the most intimate and enduring relationships to explain how you relate to him. You're always going to be my brother. He's always going to be your father. 